Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Julie Brown calls herself a lifelong learner. She got a bachelor's degree, an MFA in writing, and then a PhD. She then went on to study at Oxford, Cambridge, and the Sorbonne. But the Clatsop Community College instructor has not spent her life in classrooms. She has also spent time at sea. With a deep interest in maritime culture, she spent two years working as a deckhand on a replica of a huge 18th century ship. More recently, she's been researching how cultures all over the world have used boats to bury their dead at sea or on land. Julie Brown joins us now to talk about all of this and more. Welcome to Think Out Loud. Thanks for having me, Dave. How did you become interested in boat graves or ship burials? Well, I live in Astoria, which is a, a surrounded by water on three sides. And no matter where you look, you're either watching the ships go by or hearing the foghorns. You can't help but be curious about it. And as an English teacher, we're allowed to create classes that follow our interests. So I created a class called Literature of the Sea, where we read classic books like Moby Dick, The Old Man and the Sea, and so on. After a while, I realized... I wanted to get into the more juicy aspects of, of life at sea, the actual hands-on experience and what kind of food they eat and the tattoos and superstitions and all that. So I expanded the class into a humanities interdisciplinary class called Maritime Culture, where we could look at not just the literature, but also movies, poetry, photography, art, and, and things like that. And what about uh, these kinds of bears, and I, I think maybe we should also just, um, you can give us a clarification. These are distinct from burials at sea? Sure. What's the difference? Yeah. So a burial at sea might be if you were in the Royal Navy in England in the 1800s and you died on board ship from a disease or an accident or injury of some kind, you would be wrapped up in your hammock or an old piece of sail and not really tossed, but put overboard into the into Shoved the water. over, as we've mm -hmm. seen in, in movies. Right, so, right. So that's just a, a kind of not too much ceremony burial mm -hmm. at sea. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of, of burial in boats um, systems that, that interest you, that you're talking about? Yeah, um, I've been looking at three different areas geographically. One is the influence of the Vikings. So you have... Um, ships in that have been found in uh, Oslo, Norway, one that was found in England, one that was found in Ukraine, and there are others as well, where an important person was buried in his longship, along with a huge trove of treasure, animals, as many as 14 horses have been found in a ship, and a number of slaves were killed to follow him or her to the afterworld. So I'm looking at Northern European Germanic cultures as one area of so, study. So let's start with those. So sure. what was the idea that, I mean, it sounds a little bit like ancient Egyptians to me, um, the, you know, the, the rich fancy people being buried in lavish ways with a lot of stuff <laughs> for the afterlife. But, sure. but why a boat? 
Well, you know, even in Egypt, the pharaoh in the pyramid might have a little boat next to him, a replica of a boat, because they had an idea of crossing water to get to the afterworld. But the Vikings were so invested in the ideas of their boats as being part of their identity. It was their transportation, how they fought, how they found women sometimes, that being buried in their boat was... It signified a really close connection to their life at sea, and they believed that they would sail then in their boat to Valhalla. There was no other way to get there. And so if you were a poor person, you might be cremated and your ashes put in a little tiny boat, maybe the size of a shoebox, because you still needed a boat to get get to the afterworld. Oh, but so everybody would go sure. in a boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But some had Except sort of toy, yeah. toy, toy boats and some had, you, 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 you've been saying their boats. So these aren't. They wouldn't be replicas of the 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 leaders or the rulers' boats, but they're no, the actual, actual ones ship. they used. Yeah, it's like yeah. driving around for you know for a decade in some car, and, and then you get buried. Someone in Someone buries car. you in your car, exactly. And it's it's kind of interesting in the Osseberg ship uh, in Oslo, Norway. If you ever have a chance to go to the Viking Ship Museum in, in Norway, there was a beautiful 65-foot ship, very intricate and ornate, that had two women in it, which is a little bit unusual, um, probably mother and daughter buried together. So they were either very important to their group or married to someone important. They also could have been warriors because there were a few weapons found with them, but mostly domestic items. A 65-foot ship. I mean, I'm just trying trying to wrap my head around the resources and time to build that exactly. hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And then to to allocate those resources um, to someone's afterlife. It, it shows just how important this was. That's It's a huge outlay of... Of something right. that was worth so much. Right. Not only was the ship valuable, but the grave goods that were buried with them were incredibly valuable. If you go to the London Museum, uh, the British Museum in London, and look at the Sutton Hoo exhibit, you can look at the grave goods that were buried in England in a Viking longship. And it included a beautiful helmet that was decorated with gold and silver and outlined in tiny rubies. Uh, garnets, I'm sorry, and they studied the garnets, and they came all the way from Sri Lanka. Huh. So they were they were traded all the way across, and the 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 Sutton Hoo burial included armors, swords, axes, lots of jewelry, a music harp, dishes and coins, a silver plate from Istanbul. And lots and lots of drinking horns. And just about every burial I've studied has some kind of a drinking vessel. So that was important to them. And uh, music. Drinking and music were important. Now, are the ones that you're talking about here, because um, you've used the word burial, were these dragged onto land and put into gigantic holes in the earth? Or yeah. were they pushed out to sea? Yeah. There are different variations of that. Um, if you've ever read Beowulf, there are four funerals in Beowulf, and each one is different. So they could be burned. They could be put out to sea while burning, so they would burn into ashes out at sea. They could be set to sea and not burned. Uh, they could be burned and then buried, but they were normally buried with a big mound of dirt over them. It would kind of resemble a hill from a distance, so they were kind of buried almost above ground in a way. So that's the Vikings. That's the Vikings. But that's just one culture that has interested you in recent years. What's another one? 
Well, then I started looking at Asian cultures that had not necessarily ship graves, but more like boat graves because they were smaller. So in China, you had a group of people that lived about 3,000 years ago called the Bo people, and they were buried in canoes. And the canoes were hung from the side of a very tall cliff. So they were visible to everybody walking by, and they were lifted up and pinned to the side of a cliff with some wooden stakes. And it's thought that they were elevated um, possibly to so that animals couldn't scavenge the, the bodies, so that they couldn't be looted, so that disease would be kept away from the people. But most people believe that the spiritual component would be you're closer to heaven that way because their concept of the afterworld was was a heavenly or above us kind of a place. Yes, so they were that much closer to heaven. Combination because you're you're in a boat but in the air and, yeah. and thus closer to heaven. Yeah. yeah, Marco Polo saw them in 1271 and wrote about them. Hmm. He was impressed by that. What about closer to where we are now? What have you learned about indigenous peoples in the Northwest and? Boat burials. Well, it's so fascinating because from China, the concept spread east from China. So there are boat burials in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Indonesia, which just just briefly to mention that in Indonesia, the thought was that your boat would hitch onto a rainbow and sail on the rainbow up into heavens, mm-hmm. which I think is, is a lovely image. Mm-hmm. And then that brings us around to the Chinook. Chinook Indians that lived around the Astoria area at the mouth of the Columbia River, they also buried their dead in canoes. Hmm. What do you think unifies these different cultures that that are very different um, over vast physical distances and and time differences? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for for, uh, a lot of Westerners and Americans, you think of of being buried in the ground, it's kind of a static place where your body stays put. Your soul might migrate to a different place, but your body stays put. And all of these groups saw that the body needed to travel to uh, to another life. And canoes and boats were very, very important to them because these are all cultures that were on the water. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking right now with Julie Brown, uh, who is a teacher and a maritime scholar. She's done a lot of things over the course of her life, but she's currently an English and humanities instructor at Clatsop Community College. I mentioned in my intro that you spent two years as a deckhand on a gigantic ship called the Lady Washington. What is it? Lady Washington is a beautiful wooden tall ship. And by that, I mean it's propelled by sails that are extend vertically up very tall masts. The tallest mast is 89 feet high. And if you've ever seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean and you can picture the Black Pearl, Lady Washington looks exactly like that boat. In fact, she was used as one of the extra boats in the filming of that movie. So that's the quickest way for people to visualize what I mean by a tall ship. Why did you decide to work on it? Well, I had a student at Clatsop Community College who had been working as a deckhand on that ship, and he wrote an essay about it in one of my classes. And I read the essay, and I was so intrigued by it, I I asked him to please tell me more about it. And the more he said, the more excited I got. And so the next time it sailed up the Columbia River into Astoria, I went down to meet it at the docks and asked them how I could start working on the boat. And they sent me to a deckhand training school, basically. And when I was finished with that, I was qualified to sail on the Lady Washington as a deckhand. 
Do you remember the first day you were on it? Yeah, I was really scared. Um, I had to fly down to Morrow Bay, California, and I joined it there, and it was one of the worst storms they'd ever had. They had to close the bar, but the ship had already gone out to sea. They had to string what's called a lifeline from the bow to the stern, and we had to always hold on to it when we were moving around in case we fell off the boat. Just with your hands. It wasn't like you were carabinered into it. No, just with your hands. And the cook passed out large Ziploc baggies, and I found out what those were for pretty quickly. It was a very rough ride. Did you use the baggie? Uh, No, I didn't. I put a patch behind my ear, so I don't get get seasick. What was... What was the, the the daily work for you like? What did it mean to be a deckhand? It's very interesting. It's uh, everything's done on a four hour rotation. So you might be a navigator for four hours looking at the charts. You might be uh, on some kind of a cleaning duty, and we really do swab the decks. And the reason you do that is to keep them damp so that they don't dry up and crack. You might be on watch for four hours where your job is to sit at the prow of the boat and be on the watch for usually crab pots, pieces of driftwood, small boats, things like that. And so I I didn't realize, I guess, until I really got involved that they'll actually wake you up either at midnight, four in the morning or eight in the morning to take your shift if you're on watch at night so you can see what's in front of the boat because we don't have headlights. So. What was your age compared to? I was 54. (laughs) How was that compared to the average age of the deckhands? Most of them were in their 20s and early 30s. So I was clearly old enough to be their mother. And they were very kind to me and very patient with me. And I learned so much from them. What have you most taken from that time? Well, the, the one of the rules when you're on the Lady Washington is, is what you prioritize in an emergency, which is ship, shipmates, self. In other words, you have to take care of the boat or we all go down. You have to look after your shipmates and then you put yourself last. And I think that's kind of a good metaphor for how we should go about things when we're in a group situation. Huh. Has I mean, it's a profound and terrifying in some ways, if one, one thinks selfishly, it's terrifying. Has that actually changed the way you go through life since you've gotten off the ship? I'm I'm so much more aware of weather and climate and geography. You have to be aware of the weather 24-7, no matter what. You have to be feeling the water under your feet. If you're in your bunk, you're feeling the waves as you're wa- rocking back and forth. I, I don't think I've ever been so acutely aware of, of weather and climate as I have been on the Lady Washington. Hmm. Just briefly, you were one of the founders of the Fisher Poets Gathering. <clears throat> How did that come to be? Ah, well, I didn't know this, but a lot of fishermen out at sea write poetry and they read it to each other over the over the radio. And a fisherman named John Broderick from Cannon Beach, Oregon, contacted me and said, "Hey, um, English professor, <laughs> I've got these pile of poems from fishermen that I know, and I'm not sure what to do with it." And I immediately thought that some kind of a gathering or festival would be a good place to showcase them. And so the two of us collaborated and a a group of like-minded friends helped us. And we came up with the idea of a festival for commercial fishermen who write poetry. Why do you think it's endured? It's 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 a couple decades now, right? Well, this will be our 26th year. I, I think because 
we really do still have a very strong fishing fleet in Oregon, Alaska. It's not a mythological idea from the past, which is kind of how I look at the Cowboy Festival, but we really do have fishermen. And also... Is, is that a common thing that, that you're, you're now on the side of the, of the fishermen over the, the loggers or the oh, cowboys? Oh, I think so. Oh, yeah. You're, you're an oh, historian yeah. through and through. Of course, yeah. But I've got a funny story about fishermen and loggers, too. But... Um, there's also the recognition that that way of life is starting to decline and, and may not be around forever. So this is also a way of preserving and honoring the stories and experiences of these people, men and women. Julie Brown, it was a pleasure talking with you. I, I look forward to talking again. Thank you so much, Dave. Julie Brown is an English and humanities instructor at Clatsop Community College. Finally today, our producer Elizabeth Castillo joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, Dave. We had Portland journalist Tova Danovich on recently to talk about her book, Henfluence. She talked with senior producer Allison Frost about the culture and business of chicken keeping. We asked listeners about the best and worst parts of having backyard chickens. Rebecca Pelly marie wrote, Best, fresh eggs, entertainment, companionship. Their care helps motivate me to go outside and move my body, thus exercise and mental stimulation. Worst, their poop stinks. Muddy coop yards are gross. Losing birds to illness or predation is hard. They do draw creatures like rats, so you must keep everything tidy and locked down tightly. You absolutely must tend to them every day, even if they have big feeders and water systems in place. You must tend to them every day, even days that you don't feel like it. Rebecca went on to say, My chickens are my pets, and they're my therapy. I call them little bird people. I find them fascinating, and I would rather sit outside on an upturned bucket in their yard and watch them than go sit in my house and watch TV. I think about them a lot. I spoil them. I try to be gentle with them and give them a lot of goodies and enrichment because they have to live in a fenced-in area for their own well-being. And when I travel away from home, I miss them. Jennifer Merrill wrote, Best, they are sweet, each with their own kooky and unique personalities. The eggs are delicious, and having them since my son was three, they're a great way to teach the cycle of life and all the joy and entertainment they give to all the neighbors who stop to watch them. Worst, the flies, and as my son says, the constant cleaning— also, predator protection, the over-curiosity of certain chickens that lead to dangerous outcomes, and the need for daily tending to ensure their safety, making it harder to be out of town for long periods of time. Travis Brower wrote, Best, fresh eggs, and their entertainment value for coworkers when I do Zoom meetings from my yard. Worst, having to tamp out to their coop in downpours and ice storms and other foul weather to let them out, put them in, feed them, and change water, which they find ways to foul up in truly grotesque and amazing ways. We got a, a lot of listener reactions on Facebook and Instagram when the Portland Trailblazers announced that Damian Lillard was being traded. Susan Larman wrote on Facebook, Giannis was a big Lillard fan during the All-Star game. My gut says Giannis helped make this happen. I couldn't think of a better team to adopt and root for than the Bucks. Hope Lillard gets the big win. And Big C 503 on Instagram wrote, There has never been an athlete I looked up to more. Great template for how to carry yourself publicly and put the work in to perform when it counts. 
He'll be missed. Bill Murray wrote, Just another athlete chasing a championship or bigger paycheck. Stop praising athletes. Another user wrote, I'll be a fan of Dame wherever he goes. The most poised superstar. He got there through hard work and grinding each year. The guy you want to take the shot when the game is on the line and you need a basket. Dame time. And Amac wrote, Hope he's happy in Milwaukee. It's a beautiful, diverse city. Pretty mad at the organization for not making it work so he could go to Miami, though. Earlier this week, we talked about the 100th anniversary of the Portland Youth Philharmonic. Virginia Lake responded, excellent show. However, there wasn't one mention of Jacob Avshalomov, who was a conductor in the four years I belonged. I played viola from 1958 to 1962. Unlike the reports of Gershkovitz's nasty temper, Avshalomov was unfailingly polite and calm. The two families knew each other in Russia. By the way, on YouTube, there are public TV interviews with Avshalomov. He spoke Mandarin. He was extremely intelligent and a great storyteller. Finally, we heard from Portland musician Julian Saporiti recently. He founded No-No Boy, a music and multimedia project that combines narrative storytelling with Asian American history. Carolyn Ballou wrote... I caught the tail end of this, loved the music I heard, and loved that last little tidbit of Pacific Northwest history. We always welcome your emails and comments in whatever form. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Elizabeth. You're welcome, Dave. Monday on the show, a low-income apartment complex in North Portland was supposed to help people out of homelessness. Now some tenants are fleeing, citing filthy conditions, assault, and theft. We'll get the details on the next Think Out Loud. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC this week. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great weekend. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford.